Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. People, you know, have these assumptions that if children are brought up in a family that is different from the traditional nuclear family, even to this day, the assumption is that these children will in some way be disadvantaged. And in fact, we haven't found that at all. We found, if anything, the opposite. It's really about, you know, being open to your child's questions and making them feel that it's fine to ask the questions. In some of our studies, the lesbian and gay parents ended up, you know, doing better in terms of our assessments of parenting and child development. Hello and welcome to Some Families. If you don't already know, I am Lottie. And I am Stu. Welcome one and welcome all to our fabulous LGBTQ plus celebration of queer families. We have a fantastic episode today where we're speaking to an academic, no less, a professor called Susan Golombok. And she is the author of a new book called We Are Family, What Really Matters to Parents and Children. And I've wanted to get Susan on some families for a while to talk about all of the amazing research she does into non-traditional family forms. And her book talks about all of these different kinds of family structures and what it means for children and their development. You've loved that book, haven't you, Lottie? So we spoke to Susan and we spoke to her about her research that's been informing legislation, not just in the UK, but around the world. It was used to help same-sex marriage legislation in the US in 2015 and in the UK on the Human Fertilisation and Embryology Act in 2008 that allowed same-sex parents to be joint legal parents and the 2019 amendment that allowed single parents to become the legal parents of children born through surrogacy. So basically Susan and her data and her research has enabled all of these laws that help us LGBTQ people have the families that we want. I think the work that Susan is doing is incredible. As well as schooling me on so much about the fight that particularly lesbian mothers had in the 70s, 80s and even 90s to keep their children when they came out and divorced their husbands. It's also brilliant vindication for being an LGBTQ family because, spoiler alert, the main headline result of her research is that gay parents really, really good at being parents. I felt like it was a big pat on the back for me. I am getting my Tina Turner legs out. It is simply the best. My knees are knocking together. <laughs> Gay parents, we are here, we are queer. We are the best. So welcome to Some Families, Professor Susan Golombok. 
who is the author of this fantastic book. And it's an amazing compendium of all of your years of research into different kinds of families. And the subtitle for your book is What Really Matters for Parents and Children? So, Susan, would you mind starting by introducing yourself and your work and telling us a bit about how you ended up studying LGBTQ plus families? Yes. Um, well, thank you for having me on your podcast. So I work at University of Cambridge. I'm director of the Centre for Family Research there. And a lot of the work we do focuses on research on different kinds of family forms. So I've been working in this area for a rather long time. I first got involved in the mid-1970s, and it was really quite by accident. So I happened to pick up a copy of the feminist magazine Spare Rib, and in it was an article about lesbian mothers losing custody of their children when they divorced their ex-husbands. And in these days, custody was almost always awarded to mothers over fathers, except if the mother was a lesbian or in a lesbian relationship, in which case, without exception, she lost custody of her children. So this article presented some cases that um, had gone through the British courts, and one of the mothers who lost custody of her children called for somebody to volunteer to do some research on the children because what was happening in these court cases is that an expert witness would be brought in on behalf of the mother who would argue that what really mattered was the quality of relationships between parents and children. And then the father's side would bring in an expert who was often uh, more psychoanalytic in his uh, approach. And I say his, it was always, of course, a a male expert, who would argue that the children would experience all kinds of problems growing up in a lesbian mother family. And the judge, with absolutely no evidence, was sort of very dependent on the views of these experts and generally awarded custody to the father, who by that time had often remarried and was offering a traditional nuclear family. So the article I read in Spare Rib asked for somebody to come forward to study the children and provide some independent data on, on what happened to children who did grow up in lesbian mother families. I was very interested in the women's movement, but also I was just starting a master's degree in child development. So I volunteered to do this first study, and that was in 1976, thinking it was just you know a really small project that would last a few months of course it all turned out to be very different so one thing led to another and different kinds of families emerged which raised related but different questions and so here we are in 2021 I'm, I'm still working on this field. So at that time Susan were you did you have a lot of lesbian friends or counterparts that you knew as well? So I, I was I had just finished my first degree at Glasgow University and yeah, I mean, some of my friends were lesbians and so that, I suppose, made a difference as well because although they were too young to have children at that point, it did mean that I was sort of, yeah, involved in lesbian issues at that time and actually gay men who were my friends as well. But, of course, 
the issue of gay fathers didn't really come up until later. At that time, were there many gay dads in your experience? Or was it more, it was more commonplace for lesbian couples to be having children? Yes. I mean, there were gay fathers. There were lots of gay fathers, but they were mainly gay men who were married. And so that what would happen if if the couple split up is that the children would stay with the mum. And some of the fathers did continue to have contact with the children, but they weren't living with them. And some had contact broken because they were gay. So, I mean, it's, it's quite hard to imagine now just how different things were in the 1970s. Yeah, could you paint a bit of a picture for us? Excuse my ignorance, really, and, and that's part of the reason we wanted you on this show, is to, to help us understand the the footsteps that we now walk in, in terms of LGBTQ families and equality and the people that came before us who fought amazing fights for us to be where we are today. And I'd just love to understand a bit more about what it would have been like for a lesbian mother in the 1970s. Yes. So a lot of the mothers I interviewed had felt they had to keep their sexuality secret from most of those around them. So, I mean, some were in relationships and some were openly in relationships, but most of them were not and sometimes felt they couldn't be because they would automatically lose their children if they were. So it was just a very different time. And as I mentioned, you know, they fought for custody of their children. They began to in the mid-70s, but they didn't win. And it was really heartbreaking the way women had their children just taken away from, from them. Children that were their own biological children that, you know, they loved, who loved them, who they had brought up, simply because the, the father was providing the kind of family that everybody in these days thought was the ideal family. And it wasn't just in the UK, I mean, it was other countries as well. And in the book, I talk about some of the most notorious cases involving lesbian mothers in the 1970s. And much later, there was one in the book which involved a lesbian mother. This was the 1990s. A lesbian mother in the US losing custody to her former husband who had murdered his first wife. Oh, yeah. This was it. I, this really stood out for me in the book as a real... I think I texted Stu when I read that. It was unbelievable. I came across that story, but again, by accident, because I was in, at Harvard at the time and there was an LGBT film festival on. And I saw an ad for this film and I thought, oh, I must go and see that. Um, you know, just never realising quite how horrendous the story was and it was the 1990s so it was very very difficult and of course a lot of lesbian women stayed in marriages that they weren't happy in because they were worried about losing their children how did that particular story end did that did that person get custody that is a very good question i think eventually but it was a very very long drawn out case Certainly it was a huge legal battle and it went on for a very long time. How would it have worked then in terms of lesbian mothers having children taken away from them? Would it be that they separated from their husband, they're living happy lives with their new partner and suddenly there's a knock on the door and it's social services? usually as part of divorce arrangements, they would go to court. If it wasn't agreed outside court, they would go to court to have custody decided. So... Mm -hmm. 
you know, often the lesbian mothers would have all kinds of expert witnesses who would come and speak on their behalf, you know, about their really good relationships with their children and how well their children were doing and their child psychiatrist and all kinds of things. But the judge would generally, you know, the fact that the issue that always came up was the children might grow up to be lesbian and gay themselves, which was, in these days, enough of a reason to stop lesbian mother having custody. Even oh, though they had, you know, a whole string of experts saying what a great mother she was and all the rest of it. So, you know, it really is hard to imagine now. But I remember about 10, 15 years ago, and I was asked to go and speak to judges about the research because judges... You know, they do have kind of training days and that kind of thing. And I, I've been asked to do this a few times. So I went along and I was sitting, chatting next to one of them at lunchtime. And he said something that was a bit of an eye-opener to me. He said, you must realise that, you know, the judges who were sitting in these cases in the mid-1970s had been born in the 1920s. Very, very different mm. social circumstances. And in a way, that kind of brought it home to me. This was really, you know, these were people who'd grown up in a very different era. And what was the effect on the, the children and the families once they had been taken into their father's care? With, did you study that at all? No, I don't think anybody did. I mean, that was quite a difficult thing to study because generally the fathers were pretty hostile. Mm -hmm. So... I haven't studied that and I can't think of anybody that has. But certainly one can imagine, certainly for the mothers, it was just terrible because suddenly, you know, they'd be given notice that almost immediately they would have to hand their child over. And mm -hmm. if they were lucky, you know, see them every couple of weeks, something like that, or, you know, sometimes they had to fight to have them stay over. And then there were stories of, well, that could happen once a month or twice a month, but the mother then wasn't allowed to sleep with her partner. And, you know, there were all these conditions put on the mother just to have her child or children stay overnight. Certainly from the mother's point of view, it was devastating. I imagine from the children's point of view, it was also devastating because, you know, here they were taken out of their home, taken away from their mother, who they lived, and be brought up by all their lives to live with their father and a new stepmother. So, I mean, I'm sure it was extremely hard. And mm. being made to feel that your parent has something wrong with them as well must have been... Mm. Yes. Horrible. Well, I, I think I would like us, just as a side note of this episode, but I'd love to find one of somebody that went through that and speak to them about yeah, it would be their experience. It would be really, really fascinating. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. 
Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Oh, we want to talk about your book as well, Susan. Before we do, actually, I just wanted to ask about the state of the nation now. And have you experienced any cases lately because everything we're talking about is fairly recent history but in terms of you know recent recent cases where even if it's attempted that you know people wanting to take custody because their partners have come out and wanting to try and use that as a case against them has that been a case that you've seen recently no not for a long long time well that's positive then which is a good thing yes (laughs) Yes. definitely um i mean sometimes it might come up in an acrimonious dispute but you know the judgment is never dependent just purely on a parent's sexual orientation which is great to hear i mean it's another that's another step forward isn't it for lgbtq rights and uh, within the human rights sphere so your book susan so what really matters for well your subtitle is what really matters for parents and uh, and children in a nutshell what would you say does really matter if you were to put it in just to a, a few words so it's a question that i've been thinking about and studying well, really, for the last 40 odd years, I think it's become clearer and clearer as, as the years have moved on, because, you know, I started studying lesbian mother families. And then I, when IVF became possible, and assisted different kinds of assisted reproduction began to be either also possible or more widely practiced. That raised different questions. And then, um, you know, other types of families, single mothers by choice and gay father families. And more recently, we've been studying children with trans parents. And the more I do this research and we find that the structure of a family really in itself makes little difference to children, then the conclusion that well, I come to in the book, is that what really matters is the quality of relationships between parents and children. So that matters a lot. And by that, you know, there's a a large body of research, not carried out by me, but, you know, other psychologists around the world on what that really means. But it boils down to warmth between parents and children, being sensitive to, towards the children and you know, sensitive to their needs or when if they're upset, being sort of tuned into their moods and, and what's upsetting them. It's showing appropriate discipline and control. So not harsh and not too lenient, but, you know, enough to guide children and give them secure you know, boundaries about what they can do and what's not acceptable. Good communication, that's something else that's really positive and is particularly relevant for some of the family types that I talk about in the book because many of the children in the book have different biological parents to the parents who are bringing them up. So they may have been born 
using an egg donor, a sperm donor, embryo donors, or through surrogacy, more and more we're coming to understand that it's important that parents are open with children about their origins and that okay. children feel able to ask questions and talk freely to their parents about these other people who were involved in their conception and birth. I think something Stu and I talk about quite a lot on the show is how as gay parents we feel maybe an extra pressure to be good parents. Stu as an adoptive father feels it particularly and I feel it as well as the other mother to, to my daughter that we sort of somehow have something that we need to prove. Susan, do gay people make better parents than straight people? In some of our studies, we found they do. Yay! <laughs> and I think that, um, you know, then the next question, of course, is, well, why is that? And I think it's because children are not born generally by accident to gay parents, mm-hmm. that an awful lot of thought and planning has gone into this. And they are raised by parents who really want to have them. So therefore, it's not surprising that the parents are very involved, committed, you know, warm, loving, interact a lot with their kids. Um, that I think that's the reason. Yeah, and I think as well, is uh, to add to that, I mean, not blowing our own queer trumpet here, but I am slightly, it's about the security of relationships. When you go through that long process that you just described about having children, it, it brings you together as a couple, I feel, as well. So whether that's going through fertility treatment and really coming together to support one another or whether that's the adoption process where you are literally almost going through therapy together to, to be able to, to be approved to have your children. But yeah, I've kind of gone off on a monologue about how wonderful we are as, uh, yeah. as couples as well. <laughs> Gold stars all around, <laughs> Susan. We're just so thirsty for your approval. <laughs> <sighs> But yes, I mean, I think, it, I think it's true. And the other thing, of course, when you were saying, you know, going through, the, say, the adoption process or years of fertility treatment, is that if maybe couples who are not quite so committed to having children, they may fall off along the way and they may think, well, actually, we want to do different things with our lives and they don't keep going. But those who actually, you know, make it to the end of the adoption process which is arduous difficult and the same you know with with assisted reproduction can also be arduous and difficult that those who stick on in there to you know and actually do end up having children after all of that there really seem to me people who just really really want to be parents and really appreciate their children and being parents and um, you know, are very loving. And you mentioned just briefly then um, earlier about uh, communication in couples being one of the key things um, that really matters for parents and children and, and pe- talking about to children about their origin and how they've come into the world or how they've come into this family. Just sort of, I guess, a bit selfishly in terms of thinking about myself, my wife and our two and a half year old. What advice would you give me based on your research in terms of when and how it's best to talk to our daughter about her family? So our research shows that the earlier the better, partly from the parents' point of view, because parents often say they they worry about this whole thing. You know, they, they worry the child will be upset or distressed or 
you know, it might affect, the, in a bad way, it might affect the relationship, particularly between the non-genetic parent and the child. And so parents worry about this whole telling process and the idea of having to sit down with their child and reveal this, what to the parents is a really big issue. And what we find is the parents who find it easiest are the ones who start talking to their children when they're tiny before they can understand anything at all. And that way they're kind of used to telling the story and they never have this time where they feel they have to kind of sit down and reveal all to the child. It's something that's always been talked about in the family, even if the child doesn't necessarily understand. So it's a process, but our research shows that if you start this process in, before the children go to school, generally before the children are four years old, then these children, we find following them up, because we do a lot of longitudinal research, we follow them up from babies up to adulthood, that when they were teenagers, they actually had better relationships with their mothers. Oh, wow. That's so interesting. Great advice. Thank you. Other people, other psychologists will probably say the same, but I think we're the only research group who've done this longitudinal research looking at when parents told and mm. the impact of that. So I mean, it's just it's like adoption. The earlier, the better. And another important aspect is that the child feels they're able to ask questions in you know as they grow older they'll have different questions their understanding will change and so you know you will have to explain things in a different way but it's just having this open communication because some children feel it's kind of a taboo subject in the family and if they mention it then people get a bit upset and a bit edgy and it's really about you know, being open to your child's questions and making them feel that it's fine to ask the questions. It's like, I mean, we have, we talk a lot about shame in the LGBTQ plus community, but actually shame within the, the, the children can feel definitely from an adoption point of view, but also, you know, through those that have been born through donors, etc. if they don't feel exactly, as you said, the opportunity to be able to, talk about it understand it and and understand the the reasons why yeah it's so true I've never really thought of it like that like if you as the parent have any residual shame about your sexuality or don't feel a hundred percent okay in the family dynamic kids will pick up on that won't they and I think that's so important to like not put on your kids any of your own feelings about it not being the done thing or carrying the weight of homophobia or experiences of bullying when you were younger and stuff. And the other thing to say that's sort of slightly related to that is although many parents worry about beginning to talk to their children, you know, about either about their family or about, you know, them being born using a donor or something like that, the children are generally uninterested. So, <laughs> you know, this big telling session that parents are so worried about in a way just becomes a kind of damp squib because the children either are not very interested or they're curious but I think I mean I can't remember how many children there was one particular study I was thinking of and there were I don't know probably more than 50 children that were involved in this you know we asked the parents how did your child respond and only one out of all these children 
showed some concern or distress and the majority just weren't very interested or were curious and wanted to know more. Stu, that just makes me think, I've never really asked you about how your your kids feel, feel about having been adopted or how you talk to them. Do you talk about it often? Does it come up like every day or do you yeah. sit down and have big talks about it? It's not every day, but it's definitely the ages. So Susan, my children are five, three and one, hence the bags under my eyes at the moment. Um, <laughs> but it's mostly through literature at the moment, through books. And um, there's a great book. We actually spoke to her on this series called Carolyn Robertson, who wrote a book called Two Dads about two dads that adopt. And it's just a really simple story and adoption just happens to be part of the story. And I think those, the power of those stories to be able to talk to children. So when I read it to them, they go, I go, and both my dads adopted me. And they all just look up at me and they're like, oh, like we were, like we were, we were adopted, we're adopted. And, you know, we talk about it as openly as we possibly can, especially to others that I never hold back when speaking to parents at the school gate or anything like that about the fact that, it's that they've been adopted sometimes with the outside society as well I feel that if you're holding back it it, it raises other questions especially as an LGBT parent where it's obviously they're wondering how my husband and I did have children and whether it was adoption I feel getting it out there just puts out there we're really proud of it the children should be proud of it and that is part of their life story and that's who they are. Did they ask about their birth family much well we talk about because they have a relationship with their older brothers and we're starting to get to the age especially with my five-year-old about questions about her birth mother but she hasn't to be honest shown much interest i must say this is so um, interesting that you it. said that as well Susan. that some kids just won't be interested when i tried talking to my two and a half year old about it and i was really nervous and i was just wanted to introduce the word donor to her and say we found a special man a donor who gave us what we needed to make you because we're two women or something like it was kind of like slightly probably like tying myself in knots with it and then she was like does does he like penguins and I was like oh um yeah sure but at least I planted the the idea yes and then you'll feel you started talking about it now. yeah just so the word won't feel too alien if it comes up again but can I comment something that you said just now, Stu, which Absolutely. I realised I wanted to say a bit earlier, but when you started talking about school, because you asked me what matters for children, I talked about what matters within the family, but of course, what matters happens outside the family as well. And so that school is a really important place some schools are great and other schools are really terrible in terms of children with lgbt parents we did a study with stonewall a few years ago of the school experience um, of children with lgbt parents and we found that for some children it was really hard because their schools just didn't acknowledge their family or their family being different they didn't see families like theirs and anything they read or they you know films they saw or pictures on the walls and also they said they were really fed up having to explain about their family over and over again because the school should have done that but the school didn't so it was up to them and that, that was something that they didn't like at all so this study was actually I really liked the study because the children themselves I think we interviewed about 82 children and they themselves came up with a set of 10 recommendations 
of things that schools could do better. It was, you know, I think that's still available on the Stonewall website. Children were able to tell us very clearly what they thought was wrong at school and what the school should be doing. I wanted to ask you, you mentioned it earlier, about trans parents and some of the studies you've been doing. And I was just curious to know what the current studies are around trans parents and what you saw as like the key challenges and what the impact is on on their children. Yes. So we did a study, which I write about as a chapter in the book, and we interviewed 30 or 35 children with trans parents. Now, these were children who'd experienced their parents' transition. And so we were interested in how the children felt about that, but also what their concerns were or what they were happy with and so on. And the children were generally really happy in their families. Some had experienced some difficulties during the time of the transition. But on reflection, they generally said, my dad or my mum, they're happier now. And they could see that the transition actually made a big difference to how they felt and to their family life. But really where the parallels were with the children with lesbian or gay parents were at school and in the outside world where, you know, some parents just couldn't turn up at school because people treated them so badly. And even out in the street, you know, the children would say, and that would also be a problem because people would say horrible things to them. And of course, that was very upsetting for the children. So there's been very little research actually on children with trans parents, which was one reason that we decided we should do this. For you, Susan, what would you say has been, if you were to single out just one or two things from from your studies from over the years, what would you say is the most interesting or the most surprising? Um, well, I suppose one of the things is what you said before, that in some of our studies, the lesbian and gay parents ended up you know, doing better in terms of our assessments of parenting and child development. I mean, my prediction was there would be no differences. And I mean, some of our studies did show no differences. But then I think that is for the reason I've said, Mm -hmm. you know, these were all very wanted children with, you know, parents who were very thrilled to have them. The thing that I've had to explain more to other people, because people, you know, have these assumptions that if children are brought up in a family that is different from the traditional nuclear family, even to this day, the assumption is that these children will in some way be disadvantaged. And in fact, we haven't found that at all. We found, if anything, the opposite. But as I say, the the one remaining issue, of course, is one of the stigmatisation. It's almost like saying to the person that questions are family dynamic one here's a book that proves you completely wrong and so thank you Susan for the research you've done which enables us to use fact and data to disprove the bigotry which is great but also the fact that we can say the only one problem they face is bullying and homophobia from people like you who are questioning the (laughs) the existence of our family so I just feel happy and vindicated to to have your research out in the world. So just finally, what do you think is the future of the modern family? Where do we go from here? Well, I mean, 
When I started out in the mid-1970s, it was, you know, I just couldn't imagine all the different kinds of families that were going to appear over the next few decades. So I don't know, the mind boggles. I've just, I have no idea. I just hope I'll be around to see all these different families as they evolve. I don't know, you know, I mean, there are new developments on the horizon that will make a difference. So the idea of artificial sperm and eggs, so that would allow both partners in a lesbian or gay couple to be the genetic parents of their children. Well, that's something that's on the horizon. It's not possible yet, but it's very likely to happen. So I think some of the new family forms will follow scientific advances. Science is moving so quickly in this field, it's, it's hard to know what's coming next, really. So interesting, Susan. Thank you. Thank you, Susan, for joining us on Some Families. It was incredibly insightful. And if you want to hear more, particularly about the subject of trans parents, because I feel everything Susan was saying about in her study linked directly into the conversation we had with Zoe and Kelly back in season one, then if you haven't listened to that episode, do go and have a listen. If you would like to join the conversation, then you can DM us on Instagram or Twitter at somefamiliespod, or you can email us at somefamilies at storyhunter.co.uk. Or you can check out our website, which is www.somefamiliespod.com, where you can also sign up to be part of the Some Families community. And also, please do take a note, as in the show notes, we have a link to Susan's book. So if you feel like you want to learn more, then please go and buy her book and celebrate in the fact that queer parents are simply the best (laughs) amen we'll be back next week with another episode until then goodbye goodbye tata au revoir this episode was produced and edited by hattie moyer some families is a story hunter production imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt now imagine them getting even softer over time that's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.